up a little bit sooner, but it's nice to be with you here on a Monday, start of a new week. We tackle life podcast aftermath of a of the Memorial Tournament, a huge trade in the NFL, and today I'm going to tackle sports guy getting a big pair of shoes to fill, which has been out in the news for about a week or so, but I haven't talked about it yet, and uh, a faith portion of the podcast at the end, like always. So thanks for joining us. Appreciate it very much. Oh, I have um, a little bit of news from the former uh, star of the podcast, Mr. Chris Spielman, as I saw Spiels yesterday, so I'm happy to share that with you and glad to have you with me this morning. Uh, here as we start uh, the We Tackle Life podcast. You can email the show, wetacklelife at gmail.com. Please review us on iTunes. Give us a five-star review. Everybody who says that, and just review it like you think it deserves. I mean, if you listen to the podcast and like it, great. And if you have uh, constructive criticism or even uh, angry criticism, I read those emails too and uh, probably talk about those on the air as much as I do the good ones, although I haven't checked the uh, email inbox in a long time, so I'm going to dial it up now and see what's in there. But let's start with a shout-out to our friends at, yes, Willis Spangler Starling. There they are. They are the uh, place to go for the best attorney firm that you will find. An awesome group of people. Uh, they really care about their people, about their clients, about their profession, about their integrity, about their character, and they will care about yours as well, which is extremely important if you're looking for a great law firm and you want to win your case or you want to defend your case, but you also don't want to betray who you are. Um, you know, your name, you have it. It sticks with you forever. Your reputation, you have it. It sticks with you forever. And the people that you align with, the people that represent you, and that's exactly what an attorney firm does. It represents you. So you want people with great integrity and character and honesty and acumen. That's important, too, because you don't want to lose. Willis Spangler Starling, they do a great job. You'll find them on Truman Boulevard and Hilliard at willisattorneys.com. Willisattorneys.com. So um, with that, Memorial Tournament. Wow. Wacky. Wild. Crazy, right? Um, okay. I do not agree with the decision to sideline John Rahm with a six-shot lead from Sunday's final round. It's not because I'm a COVID denier. It's not because I'm a vaccine denier. It's because if there's any sport, any endeavor, any activity where someone could have COVID and participate in it and be absolutely no risk to anyone, it's golf. It's golf, right? Like, his caddy doesn't even have to stand next to him. Uh Golf is the ultimate solo sport. You cannot play defense on your opponent. Uh, there are those who say, well, it would have been unfair for John Rahm to play the final round by himself because, let's say, Patrick Cantlay or Colin Morikawa, if they're in the same group with John Rahm, they make an eagle, and Rom bogeys the same par five. There's a three-shot swing, and now John Rom doesn't see what's happening right in front of him. Yeah, okay, all right, I'm not going to dispute that. Is that better than taking a guy out of the field who has a six-shot lead and robbing him of, sure, the prize money? I mean, for people who say, oh, the prize money's irrelevant, John Rom's a millionaire. $1.6 million is not irrelevant to anybody, okay? But the FedEx Cup points, uh, I assume John Rahm is going to be a Ryder Cupper for Europe. He probably doesn't need the points, but still that's a part of it. The prestige of winning a tournament, the prestige of winning a tournament like Jack's tournament, 
the prestige of defending your title, all those things, it would have been eminently more fair for John Rahm to play the final round of the Memorial Tournament by himself than it would have been to take him clear out of the field. Now, I know this is PGA Tour protocol, and I know that you know he had a chance to get vaccinated, and he apparently didn't get vaccinated both times until like a week ago he got his first vaccine. This is, we want to do this, right? We want to put the scarlet letter on people that they either have a vaccine or don't have a vaccine. John Rahm should be able to make his own decisions. You say, well, he made his own decision and he paid the consequences for his decision. Okay, yeah, he did. That's right. I'm not going to dispute that. I'm a big consequence guy. But my point is the protocols the PGA Tour have are stupid. Jack Nicklaus, who's old, vulnerable, theoretically, even though Jack's had COVID and Jack's been vaccine, vaccinated. You can't put John Rahm around Jack Nicklaus. All right, then don't. Keep them apart. John Rahm could literally have warmed up for his round at either Tartan Fields or the Country Club at Muirfield, gotten in a car, driven across the road, had cops around him keeping everybody 20 yards away from him, He could have walked to the first tee, hit his shot, played a round of golf, and been a danger to no one. Been a danger to no one. That is ridiculous. The PGA Tour's penalty to John Rahm. And you don't even know if he's, like, he's asymptomatic, right? I mean, I'll just say this. If every touring pro could have the choice of shooting 65-64 in the second and third round of a tournament with COVID or shooting whatever they'd shoot on their own without COVID, every single one of them would take COVID and a (laughs) 64-65. Now, I know Rom didn't shoot that because he had COVID. I'm just saying he shot it with COVID, theoretically, and so how debilitating was it to John Rom? It was not. The other part of this that is so phony is that the tour got news that John Rahm's backup sample tested positive for COVID at 4.20 p.m. Saturday and let him continue to play in close proximity to, I think at that time, it was Scotty Scheffler and Patrick Cantlay. Yes, it was. Patrick Cantlay and Scotty Scheffler. So Rom is a danger to them with COVID, but without knowing he has COVID for probably five, six holes, as opposed to he can't play with people on Sunday when he knows he has COVID and everybody knows he has COVID because they told him on the 18th green on Sunday. And what is that garbage? Telling him he's got COVID on the 18th green, just as he walks off the course, like for the big theater of it, for the public shaming of John Rahm, like you couldn't wait till he got inside? Stupid. Go out there and hand him a mask and let him walk someplace private and tell him in private, listen, I know that the tour let guys play with COVID together before they develop this current protocol. And with all the, I'll say it, herd immunity out there, 
with all that we've learned about COVID, that it's not it's not uh, transmissible on surfaces, right? We know that now. We know masks don't help. Uh, Fauci said that. The droplets get in. Fauci's email uh, drop said that. I'm not trying to make this segment, the word I'm looking uh, contentious about should you get a vaccine, should you not, is COVID serious or not. I'm not trying to make it contentious on those counts. I'm telling you, John Rahm could have been accommodated Sunday to play the final round of the Memorial in any tournament. And I'm going to just, I'm not just uh, upset about this because it's the Memorial. I think it, I think their protocols are dumb. They're indefensible. They're ridiculous. There's no reason why he could not have finished that tournament. Now, if you want to say if a guy tests on Thursday morning or even after Thursday's round, okay, he's got 54 holes to play. But he's got a six-shot lead. How about we decide these things on a case-by-case basis? People say, oh, case-by-case is not fair. Let's establish a rigid protocol. No, case-by-case is more fair. A six-shot lead with a 50, after 54 holes is different than a guy who's two strokes off the lead or two strokes in the lead after 18 holes of a tournament. Like, this is just, there's just no logical, and there's the word, there's the word. That's the fly in the ointment on this. There's no logical defense for the tour's intractable decision on this. No one will convince me otherwise of this. Maybe I didn't convince you otherwise of this. So, okay, Patrick Cantley wins the tournament. And while I've always thought that it was unfair to Roger Maris that his 61 home runs for years and years and years and years had an asterisk next to it because he played eight more games than Babe Ruth did when Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs. And while I do think, this is why I argue for case by case, Roger Maris should not have had an asterisk. Or I don't really care about the asterisk, and Roger Maris shouldn't have cared. Barry Bonds should have had an asterisk because he juiced when he hit 70 home runs. But Patrick Cantlay's win should have an asterisk. Because Patrick Cantley, and I wish Cantley, some people were lauding Patrick Cantley for saying, well, we all know it would have been a different tournament. Why not go all the way and say what we all know? We all know it's very likely that John Rahm would have won this golf tournament. And I won it. I would have loved to have seen Cantley say, so I'm going to give all my money from this tournament. The diff- I'm going to give the difference between first and second. I'm going to give it to John Rahm. Or I'm going to give it to Charity. Because while I won the tournament, I don't deserve the $1.6 million first prize. It's too bad. The memorial was marred. Uh, I will get into more of this at the end of the faith portion of the podcast because I think this applies. Um, my buddy Rob Oller from the Dispatch, and Rob's a friend. Rob's a, Rob's a brother in Christ. Rob's a friend. I just strongly disagree with Rob's column. And Rob and I, I should have Rob on. We should talk about it. Um, you know, Rob base, Rob must be a vaccine guy. That's okay. It's fine. I don't care if you're a vaccine guy. Great. And if you're not a vaccine guy, uh, that's fine too. Um, so, um, yeah, I just, anyway, that's where we are. Okay. Second topic today, before I get to it, shout out Hemisphere Coffee Roasters Coffee. They are the longest running sponsor of the podcast. They are phenomenal people. They do great work around the world. Just like auiinfo.com just like willow spangler starling hemisphere coffee roasters has found purpose in their life 
the search for purpose in life is the thing that once you find it will prove more fulfilling even than finding anything else you lust after money prominence prestige purpose is what really makes your life full of contentment so Willis Spangler Starlings founded in the law. AUIs found it by servicing people in the insurance industry, which they're fascinated by all the ins and outs and quirks of the insurance industry. And Hemisphere, Paul loved coffee and he loved ministry. And he found a way to combine the two by buying coffee from growers around the world in underprivileged, under um, maybe uh, disadvantaged countries, Nicaragua, uh, Indonesia, Thailand. And he found a way to pump money into the, those local economies by buying their coffee. It has to be great coffee. and He's a very discerning buyer. Then he brings the coffee to market here, but the growers get more money than they'd get if they went through government sources. And then they do great things like planting churches and saving people from human trafficking and all that. So find purpose in life. Hemispheres found it. You'll love their coffee. You'll get 15% off when you use the promo code we tackle life in all caps. We tackle life in all caps at HemisphereCoffeeRoasters.com. Speaking of Hemisphere, saw Mr. Spielman yesterday, his lovely, beautiful daughter Audrey's graduation party. Awesome time. Love seeing Chris, Noah, Maddie, Macy. Had a nice, nice long conversation with Maddie, uh, my former on-air partner at The Zone. We both talked about how difficult it was to get up at crazy hours of the morning to do sports radio, but how much fun we had together. I just love the Spielman family. They're so great. And I'm so happy for Chris that he is, he's got purpose. He's always had purpose in his life, but he's got a new purpose. Your purpose can change. Chris is so uniquely gifted for this position that he has with the Lions because through the Stephanie Spielman Fund, he networked with, you name it, millionaires, billionaires. So Chris can talk that language. He understands the business side. He can sit and watch tape with Dan Campbell of the Lions, and he can talk the football side. And he's a builder of consensus and an under somebody who understands the importance of culture, sacrifice, serving, all these life principles that Chris has made a foundational in his life and all the foundational principles that he and Stephanie and now he and Carrie are ingraining in their children with the way they live their life, with the example that they provide, all those things, I'm just so excited for him. He looks so, he is so happy. Well, no, wrong word. He is so content because happiness depends upon your circumstances. Chris has embodied that contentment is not dependent on circumstances. He and his four kids and Steph all dealt with horrendous circumstances, but they remained content amid those circumstances because they humbled themselves and saw that God had a purpose in everything they were doing. And But it's just so great Maddie now is transitioning into a full-time fundraiser for the Stephanie Spielman Fund. And so she's going to get to travel when travel gets back to normal. And so many people, she said, mention her mom when she talks to them. Maddie has the light of her mom. All of the girls do. Noah does, too. Uh, they have the light of, of Steph in them. And it's so great that Maddie can now converse about her mom. And, I mean, sure, she misses her, and there's always going to be a pain there. But it's a, it's a different feeling now than in the immediate aftermath, the rawness of losing Steph in 2009. And so it was just so fantastic to just be there and celebrate with them and to hear Mace talk about her recovery from knee surgery, her transfer to Ashland from Bowling Green, 
recapturing her love of basketball. Um, just what a great day it was. And to talk to Chris and to hear about what he's doing with the Lions. And, um, yeah, just great. I mean, just I'm so happy for them. And uh, I miss Chris on the podcast. I know you guys miss Chris on the podcast. Just know he's like he's really doing um, well. And uh, I'm thrilled for him. Totally, totally thrilled for him. Okay, uh, what else do we have? Speaking of uh, Chris and the NFL, big trade. Woo, big trade. Browns fans, woo, Bengal fans, winning the AFC just got a lot harder because the Tennessee Titans now have Julio Jones. <laughs> Julio Jones and A.J. Brown and Derrick Henry. Whoa, Ryan Tannehill, your ship has come in, my friend. Mike Vrabel. Your ship has come in, and the Titans didn't even have to give up a one to get Julio Jones. They got him for a two and a four. Wow. You can say, well, he's on the downside of his career. Uh, He didn't have the greatest year last year, but that was injury-related. If Julio Jones is healthy, that guy's always been a freak. So will he bounce back? That's a fascinating story. The rebirth of A.J. Green and the rebirth of Julio Jones, the guys who came out in the same draft, and everybody wanted, and the Bengals chose wisely. A.J. Green was phenomenal. But the Falcons got a great player because the Browns didn't take AJ, uh, didn't take Julio Jones. And I used to know that Browns trade chapter and verse. <laughs> All you Browns fans are like, don't remind me. Greg Little, Phil Taylor, Colt McCoy, uh, Owen Marisic, it might have been somebody else that the Browns got for trading. Uh, wait, 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 wait for it. There's one more. There's one more as a first rounder they got. Ugh, I can't remember. Anyway, they got essentially nothing out of the Julio Jones trade. And uh, the Falcons got Julio Jones, an NFL uh, Pro Football Hall of Famer. So there you go. But now, wow, the Titans with, a- with uh, Julio Jones, A.J. Brown, and Derrick Henry. That's amazing. That's an amazing, amazing array of weapons. And yes, I'd rather have Julio Jones and A.J. Brown than I would Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry. I would. Because those other those Titans guys are more reliable. They just are. Landry's great uh, possession receiver. Odell, hmm, will Odell be healthy? Who knows? Who knows? So... Uh, that's where we sit with that. Okay, uh, final read AUI. I mentioned AUI, but if you're a business owner, you need to remember AUI because AUI will save you money. Maybe keep you in business. Your margins are thin, very very narrow. I get it. You want to provide great benefits for your employees because what better way to attract employees? Benefits attract employees. Benefits keep employees. But you're like a small business owner, and you're like, man, I can't hang with a big company. Well, you can when it comes to benefits because you can package yourself with other small businesses, get a chamber of commerce plan, which gives you that buying power of all those different uh, people in your collective. But you think, well, wow, some chambers, uh, like the the Cleveland chamber plan is great, but I'm in Columbus. So you didn't know this, but AUI does. You can have the chamber plan out of Cleveland. And you can belong to the Cincinnati Chamber. They understand all the nuances of this, and they can... uh, Somebody's uh, calling me here, and I have no idea who it is. So 
sorry I didn't uh, turn the old phone off before the podcast, but nobody uh, didn't register on my phone who that was. Maybe somebody watching the podcast trying to prank me. Yes, my phone was on. Ha ha, you got me. Uh, <laughs> all right, so now, um, but AUI will do a great job for you. If you have two employees, 50 employees, doesn't matter. You're a small business, they're a small business. And they put benefits packages together because they know all the insurance plans. And then you don't have to do it, which is great. You just tell them on a chat at auiinfo.com, auiinfo.com. I'm a small business. I have this many employees. I pay this. These are our benefits. What can I get for this much money? Could you save me money? Who has a better plan? AUI lets you pick the plan. They don't tell you, you got to pick this plan. And you don't pay them. You don't pay them. The insurance companies pay them because they're looking for business and you are who they're looking for. Okay, a brief note. Uh, I know a lot of you don't like Clay Travis because a lot of you are Ohio State football fans and Clay Travis is an SEC guy who likes to tweak Ohio State. But Clay Travis, trust me, is somebody who's in this business is incredibly, incredibly insightful on trends of the business. He was calling the demise of ESPN and its uh, foolish decision to embrace politics as content long before anyone else. And he was the only one reporting on um, the, uh, the wave of gambling sites coming and how gambling, sports gambling, was going to revolutionize sports, which it is. Uh, Bally Sports Ohio. Mm, it's not Fox Sports Ohio anymore. It's Bally Sports Ohio because of Bally Gaming. You're going to see more and more of this. You're going to see future point-shaving scandals. You're going to see a lot of the, Clay Travis predicts all this stuff, and he's usually right. He's usually dead right on it. Um, so he now has moved from a guy who was an attorney writing books about the SEC and then a guy with a local radio show in Nashville to a guy who worked his tail off to build OutKick, the coverage, into a national brand, probably sold it for millions of dollars, if not tens of millions of dollars. Clay Travis now gets the big chair, along with Buck Sexton, of the Rush Limbaugh time slot. And I don't know how this is going to work. First of all, I've never heard Buck Sexton in my life. I think he's conservative. I know he's a former CIA agent. Clay is not conservative. Clay's a, I'd say, libertarian. But because the culture and the loudest voices out there have gone very far left, Clay has pointed out sometimes the absurdity of far left positions. And so he's branded far right or even alt right, which I know he's not because he worked for Clinton and he voted for Obama twice. So Clay Travis and Buck Sexton, uh, I, don't, I don't think I've seen an official name for the show yet. I'm going to say they're going to call it Buck and Clay. Uh because in radio, like Sexton and Travis, no, Travis and Sexton, no, Buck and Clay. Buck and Clay has a better sound to it. Uh, they may come up with another name, but mostly guys want their name in the show. So I'm going to say Buck and Clay will be the name of the show. I think later this month it debuts. Maybe it's debuted already. I haven't heard it because the local iHeart affiliate, uh, 610 WTVN, is not carrying it yet. They're still carrying Todd Herman. Uh, but there's like this feeding frenzy now for that Rush Limbaugh time slot. Some people are taking Dan Bongino. Some people are taking Dana Lash. And some people, I'm sure, will take Buck Sexton and Clay Travis. In terms of those two guys and how they'll sound together, I don't know if they'll sound the same. It's important in radio when you have a collaborative show that when someone's talking, you know who's talking. You, can't, you don't want to con, you know, confuse the two voices. Will they be dissimilar enough? See, Clay... Um, as I said, had this libertarian, you know, independent, 
kind of center-right Democrat view. And Sexton, I don't know his views, but are they going to have the same views? I do know this. If one of them is playing a part and not really speaking from the heart, which I can't ever imagine Clay Travis doing that, um, the show won't be as good as it could be. I've never played a part on radio, and um, I think Bo wouldn't mind me saying this. Bo Bishop, my good friend from 97.1, Bo and I have laughed before about shows where guys are playing a part. They're playing a role. They're not really themselves. And so Buck and Clay, are they going to be authentic? Yeah, I think they are. And I just don't know if it'll work. I just don't know if it'll work. Okay, so with that, uh, one other thing in the sports realm. Uh, it's kind of in the culture realm, but I've told you guys I'm not going to separate culture from faith, and this is a sports thing. So you may seem like a culture thing, but it's a sports thing. Today there's a story on ESPN uh, quoting the U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, uh, telling ESPN, and I'll just read it, transgender girls, that's a biological male who identifies as a girl, transgender girls will have, quote, a right to compete, and suggested that the Biden administration will step in to protect transgender girls, biological men, uh, their civil rights as multiple states enact legislation banning transgender athletes from competing in girls' and women's sports. Okay, that's accurate. Banning transgender athletes from competing in girls' and women's sports. Yes, they are banning them from that. But often it's stated that they're banning them from playing sports. No transgender girl, biological boy, identifying as a girl, is banned from sports. They're not. I know the left likes to say they are because then it plays on your heartstrings. Oh, that's unfair. They can't play sports. No, they can play sports. They just have to play sports in the genre that matches their biological sex, that matches their biology. If you're born a man, you got to play men's sports. If you're born a girl, you got to play girls' sports. Although nobody's going to care if a transgender Man, a biological woman, wants to play a man sport because she's going to get killed, crushed. She's not going to be able to compete. But the mere fact is, because of the genetics of the human body, boys are most often born with, well, they're always born with a different muscle structure, uh, narrower hips, wider shoulders. They may not have that muscle structure develop. Are there women who are naturally stronger than some men. Sure, of course, there are always exceptions. How many of you got punched out in junior high school by a tomboy? <laughs> that happens, right? But generally then, boys, as they go through puberty, they get stronger, and girls develop what girls develop, and men can usurp their physical strength advantage generally over women. This manifests itself faster, stronger. Bigger, stronger, faster. Pretty much simple, okay? Um, so this is going to be a battle between the federal government saying you have to let biological men play sports against girls, uh, in girls' sports, and the state governments, eight states, Florida the latest, have enacted um, bills that say you have to play in the genre that your biological sex matches. Ohio has such a bill. It has not been passed yet. I hope it does pass. Because I will tell you right now, if my daughter is playing soccer this fall and a biological boy is on that field for the opposing team, 
I will pull my daughter off the field. Because, not because I'm trying to make a political statement, not because I'm trying to make a social statement. I will pull my daughter off the field because I want to protect her physical safety. Because soccer is a dangerously physical sport enough with girls going at girls' feet and heading balls and heads crashing into each other that I'm not going to have her on the field with a boy on the field. I don't have any concern that unless it's a, you know, I mean, my daughter is really good and she's really fast and I think she'd probably do fine uh, unless the boy is extremely, the boy would have to be in like the 70th percentiles of boys soccer players to be able to take, uh, have a, have a supreme advantage over my daughter, but I won't put her at that physical disadvantage. I won't put her in that physical danger. And it's a question of fairness. Yeah, it is fairness. And so I don't know how high school leagues are going to decide this, but I'll tell you where I see it going. I'll just give you my best analysis of where this is going. The NCAA is all in on this. The NCAA is all in on protecting transgender uh, girls, biological men playing girls sports. This will not be good for the NCAA. And I, I'll just tell you from a cultural standpoint, this will not be good for the Democratic Party in the 2024 midterms. If the Democratic Party holds to this and tries to strong arm its way into um, uh, forcing this on states, this will not end well for the Democratic Party in the 2024 midterms because this is not a mainstream opinion. It's just not. Uh, I'm not going to argue the merits of it with you. It's just not a mainstream opinion. All the polling shows that. They will pay a severe price at the polls for this in many states. Uh, in the NCAA, which is all you know, we care about here on this podcast, if biological men start playing girls' sports, then the only audience at girls' sports will be um, the LGBTQ community. That's always that's all already a large portion of the audience, but it will become almost exclusively the audience for college Division One sports. And I will say this: this more than a college football playoff more than name, image, and likeness, will cause a rival organization to develop out of the ether to challenge the NCAA. You will have schools in many states, and you will have many religious schools affiliate with whatever organization comes to bear to say, in our organization, now obviously they can't do this if the feds (laughs) strong-arm them, but they can say, if, they, if there's an organization that says, we're going to go by biology on sports, and the NCAA is like, nope, we're going to let transgender men, transgender girls, biological men, play girls' sports, it's going to fracture NCAA athletics as we know it. Now, what's going to really be interesting is if we have, like in the state of Florida, let's say, they have a ban on biological boys, biological men, transgender girls, that's the same thing, playing sports with girls. So let's take Florida State, Florida, Miami. Okay, so Florida State and Miami are in the ACC. And there may be schools in the ACC, in states in the ACC, that say, sure, it's okay. How's that going to work out? You're at a severe competitive disadvantage. I just don't know how that's going to work. If Florida says, I don't know how far the Florida law goes or the other eight states go. South Dakota's one, Idaho's one, I think. Are they going to say that if you come into our borders, you're 
transgender girls can't play in our state? I don't know, but the federal government would be wise to stay out of this fight. And I know they see it as a civil rights thing. I get it. Um, Who's to say what side of history this will fall on? Uh, This is not, though. This is not a civil rights issue. Civil rights would have been during the, the 60s when you had one water fountain for whites, one water fountain for blacks. Blacks had to sit in the back of the bus. Blacks couldn't eat at a restaurant. Blacks couldn't stay at a hotel. Nobody, nobody is saying that about transgender people. Transgender people are not to be discriminated against in water fountains, hotel rooms, buses, all that stuff. They are to be loved, but they have a disconnect between their biological reality and their mental reality. It's the same disconnect that an anorexic person has between their biological reality and their mental reality. They think they're thin. They think they're horrendously fat. They're not. They're not horrendously fat. I see no difference between telling an anorexic person, you know, you're right. You really need to lose some weight. I'd go throw up if I were you. And telling a transgender person, you know, you're right. You feel like a girl, you are a girl. No. If you watch the 60 Minutes thing, the numbers, the the high suicide rates, the regret for transition surgeries and sex hormones and all that stuff. I told you I'm going to be honest with you, right? I know many of you may not like this podcast. There may be those of you out there who go, hey, let's dox this podcast. Go ahead. I'm speaking from the heart. I do not hate transgender people. I'm just saying we are not denying transgender people any opportunities. They can play the sport that matches their genre biologically. They cannot play in a sport where they have a distinct advantage. Saturday at the state track meet, there was a young lady. I want to say her name was Paige Floria. Um, I want to, I'll get her name right here in a second. She's a young lady from Mentor High School, east of Cleveland. And Paige Floria won four individual events at the state track and field meet. I mean, what a performance, right? She won the 100, the 200, the 400, and the long jump. Amazing. If there were moderately skilled boys in her races, Paige Floria would not have won four titles. She wouldn't have. And that's unfair to Paige Floria and her mentor high school teammates. Uh, shout out to Justin Braun from Westerville Central. He won three titles, uh, which is been done very rarely in the state of Ohio, not since Chris Nellums. And Justin Braun won the 100, 200, and 400. If you put Paige Floria and any district champion, not state champion, not regional champion, any district champion in the boys 100, 200, 400, or long jump, and they competed, that district champion competed against Paige Floria, Paige would not have won those events. Just wouldn't have. And Paige Floria would have been denied all the accomplishments and all the all the payoff for her hard work because of someone's biological disconnect. No, no, excuse me, mental disconnect between their physical biology and how they view themselves mentally. So transgender people should have 
opportunities that match their biology. They should not be given special dispensation to play because all it would take, and I, I, w- I actually do wish this would happen. I do wish this would happen to show the absurdity of it. I wish a professional tennis player ranked in the 400s as a man, 300s as a man, would, in order to prove this point, would, would say, I'm identifying as a female and I'm going to play the female tour. He'd win every Grand Slam event. He'd win every major. It would be an absurd situation. I wish a male touring pro ranked wherever, 200, 300 in the world, would put on a wig and say, I'm playing as a woman. He would win every golf tournament. He would win every major. That would be absurd. But if the absurd proves the point, then the point is proven. Okay? So just craziness, utter craziness. And uh, we must love, support, counsel, help, uh, welcome transgender people into our society, but we do not marginalize our females, our girls, in doing that. We do not. That is just, no, not doing it, okay? So there we go. Okay, now, I wanted to talk today about math, okay? A little math. I have a friend, a couple friends, we were at dinner a couple weeks ago, and we were talking, somehow we got off on the topic of aviation, and we got off on the topic of... I think I brought up the raid to get bin Laden, and I listened to that podcast with uh, John Oliver. I think his name's John Oliver. No, John O'Neill. John O'Neill. I think it's I think it's John. John O'Neill. I think is the guy, the SEAL who shot bin Laden. And the Megyn Kelly podcast had an amazing interview with this guy, and they flew into um, Saudi Arabia. No, maybe it was Pakistan. It was Pakistan on helicopters, two helicopters, that made no sound. None. They had been engineered to make not a sound. Silent. Okay. So we were talking about aviation, the amazing things in aviation. And and then these two friends started talking about a guy named Kelly Johnson and a project of Lockheed Martin called Skunk Works. Look it up. It's fascinating. So in the 40s and the 50s, this guy Kelly Johnson started conceptualizing and getting a group of engineers together to build things that were so far beyond. Uh, Like now, maybe the UFOs that the Pentagon is showing us on videotape, but we can't explain the UFOs. Are the aliens, are they another uh, more advanced form of aircraft from a foreign enemy? Are they U.S. things that are so top secret nobody in the U.S. military knows about them? We don't know, but we know that there's a template for these kinds of radically advanced aircraft because these guys at Skunk Works and Kelly Johnson built them in the 50s and the 60s. Invisible planes, planes could fly Mach 3, planes could outrun missiles, all this stuff. Read about it. It's fascinating. And one of my friends said they did all this before calculators. They did it with a slide rule. (laughs) Many of you are too young to remember slide rules. But slide rules were the forerunner to calculators. And slide rules could do complicated math equations and, and uh, give you an answer. I never used a slide rule. I'm old. I'm not that old. Okay. My brother had a slide rule. <laughs> and then he got one of the first calculators. And I remember when we bought him his first calculator by Texas Instruments. We bought it at Reich's at the Upper Valley Mall, which is about ready to go out of business. And Reich's has been out of business for a long time. Uh, Reich's became Lazarus, which became Macy's, which 
who knows? There's probably something else in between. Uh, but anyway, the first calculator we bought my brother, it's like in the mid-70s, cost like $75, which in today's dollars, that'd be like 500 bucks. At any rate, the, the story is that these guys were able to do things far beyond what anybody could conceptualize because of math. And math is complex, and math always makes sense, right? It always makes sense. One plus one equals one. Or one plus, <laughs> what? One plus one equals two. One plus one equals two, okay? Two plus two equals four. That's indisputable, except now in our crazy times where we're trying to make that kind of stuff uh, not diverse enough. But anyway, I digress. Um, so math is what math is. There's only one right answer in math. Okay. But I got to thinking when I saw something the other day, I saw a sign on the news and the sign said, love is love. So it said, love is love. And I sat there and I pondered it. Now this was being used, uh, at a, um, at a pride parade. Love is love, right? And the implication being, look, I love this person. They're the same sex as me. Um, love is love. So accept it. Because if you don't, who's against love, right? So I sat there as I, I pondered that sign. I thought, hmm, love is love. How would I respond to that in a Christian fashion? How would God respond to that? How does God view that? And I thought, well, love is love. God is love. Like I've talked before, I know I did a faith portion of this podcast, God is love. His very essence is love. He doesn't love based on how you behave. He loves. It's a very hard concept for some people to grasp that uh, God does not love me more now than he did when I was not saved. God does not love me more than he loves an unrepentant serial killer. He doesn't. We'll have different fates eternally, but he doesn't love me any different. He doesn't love me more. He doesn't love me less. He doesn't love the serial killer less than he loves me. God is love. His essence is love. Everything about him is love. His very, every part of his nature is love. And he manifests that love to us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross so we can be forgiven of our sins. That's how he demonstrates his love. The Bible says God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. So he sent his son to die for me. He sent his son to die for you. He sent his son to die for Ted Bundy. He sent his son to die for John Gacy. He sent his son to die for everyone in the world. And God doesn't desire my fellowship in heaven eternally any more than he desired John Gacy's. Now, I don't know John Gacy's eternal destination. I have a pretty good assumption of what it is, but maybe he had a, you know, coming to faith at the end of his life. They are, there are, there are those who say Ted Bundy did. And there are a lot of people who go, I heard Matt Walsh, who I'm a big fan of Matt Walsh on the uh, Daily Wire, his podcast. Matt Walsh said one time, I don't want to be in heaven where there are a bunch of murderers and rapists. And I'm thinking, yeah, you do. Because there will be a bunch of murderers and rapists in heaven, assuming they have repented by accepting Christ as their Savior. And that's where the math spiritually doesn't work. It doesn't work like math at Skunk Works at Lockheed Martin with Kelly Johnson and the Mach 3 airplane. It doesn't work like the calculator tells you one plus one equals two. Because the math on love is love, if it's math, like A 
A equals B, love is love, love equals love, A equals B, B equals C, then A must equal C, right? If A equals B and A equals C, then A must, then C must equal B. You got it, right? That's true in math. It's not true with God. God is love. Love, you may say, is love, but the kind of love they're talking about on that sign is love that is disobedient to how God wants you to live. And it's not that I'm cracking on homosexuality. I'm saying there are many things you can love. What does the Bible say about the love of money? It's the root of all evil. What does God say about the world? Do not love the world or anything in the world, right? Love me, prioritize me, esteem me, extol me. So the whole thing of dismissing like sin as, well, it's love. Or dismissing, like, I love food, but if I'm a glutton, that's a sin. I love words. I love language. But I can't take the Lord's name in vain. That's not language that I should love, should produce, should reflect. So love can be misdirected. God tells us to love him to love his word, to love his wisdom, to love the things of God. That's fine. You can love all that. That's what you should love. Anything else apart from God, apart from his blessing, apart from his essence, no, you're not safe. You're not okay. You're not on solid ground just because you say, well, I love, you know, Love is love. No, it isn't. You can love the wrong things. People who love the high they get from drugs, is that good? (laughs) No. Okay, so that's what I mean. Like, don't try to look at arguments when people make arguments to justify certain behaviors and say, no, I'm sorry, that doesn't work. The math, the spiritual math on that does not work. And the Apostle Paul gives us a very good template for that in the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians was the first letter Paul wrote to the Galatian church because he had led them to Christ. He had exposed, he had, he had enlightened them that, you know what, you don't have to keep all these old Jewish customs and circumcision and keeping kosher and all that because there's a new way now that we have been exposed to through Jesus' ministry, and this was Paul's letter was written, I don't know, maybe 30 years after Jesus died on the cross, came back to life, ascended to heaven. Paul went to this Galatian church, and he led him to Christ. And then he went away, and he was traveling around, like trying to lead other people to Christ. And then he heard like these stories that these Galatian people were like insisting on circumcision and insisting on keeping kosher and insisting on keeping all these Jewish customs that he had explained to them had no value. So he's writing in this letter, and in this letter he's talking about the people who are getting them off the truth that Jesus at the cross is the only thing. God said, Paul says, I preach Christ crucified. That's what I preach. That's it. That's the gospel. I don't preach this, that, and the other. I preach Christ crucified. And then what does that compel you to do? Obey what he teaches you. Jesus said, 
if you obey my teaching, you're like a man who built his house on a solid rock. And then the storms came and life's adversities came and they hit the house and the house was fine because it was built on the solid rock of my teaching. But the people who don't obey my teaching are people who build their house on sand and the storms of life come and they buffet the house and the house what? Crumbles because it doesn't have a solid foundation of obeying Christ's teaching. So Paul is saying to these people in Galatia who are being hoodwinked, bewitched, mesmerized, taken off their truth of God's word that it's Christ at the cross and that's how you're saved and it's not anything else. Paul's talking about these false teachers, and there are a lot of them in the world today. He says, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. That is Galatians 4, 17 and 18. So a lot of people are zealous today. Oh, boy, are they ever. They're zealous about gay rights, transgenderism, abortion, gluttony, swearing, money, prominence, prestige, power. A lot of zealotry out there. A lot of deep commitment. A lot of all-in. But if it's not for Jesus, if it's not in line with his teaching, they're lying to you. And the consequences will be dire. Consequences will be very, very dire. So with that, I will bid you adieu. Thank you for your time. Remember to send me an email, Bruce at, uh, no, sorry, I'm sorry. We tackle life at gmail.com. We tackle life at gmail.com. I thank you for watching. Uh, you can catch the podcast on iTunes and Google Play if you are just now um, joining. And um, I appreciate your time and attention. Hope you have a great day. Uh, if you want to catch my radio show, it's at 5 p.m. tonight, 98.9 The Answer, 989theanswer.com is the web address. You can find the uh, 989theanswer.com in Columbus on the i on the iHeart, TuneIn, and Radio.com apps. We have our own app. Search 989FM, The Answer, in the iTunes and Google Play Store. With that, have a great day. God bless. Talk to you Wednesday.